John, it's the end of an era. I know. It's the end of time, as we know it. Yeah. <laughs> Give us another 10 years or so. I think that's why we want to, like, we've been talking a bit about it's it's actually the end of the decade, believe it or not. It doesn't really feel like it, mostly because I think the end of the decade typically has some sort of level of optimism that we're just not accustomed to nowadays. Uh, no. We're, Nor should we have it. No, we're staring down the barrel of a terrible presidential campaign with climate disasters around the corner. Yeah, there's, and everyone's doing like these retrospectives, and it just feels too early because, like, civilization is falling apart as we speak. So what's the point in looking back? What were the best movies of the of the hot tens? <laughs> I think that's because we are keenly aware of the circumstances of our world, and so pop culture feels so. A vestigial at this point. Mm. There is no reason to even look at it, much less reminisce about it. And also, like we've kind of lost this monoculture because, obviously, in the age of the internet, anybody can get whatever information or access that they want. So it's not like I don't know. Do people even remember like the first Avengers movie? Or <laughs> oh, they do. They do. Okay, um, that's a, okay. Maybe that's a bad example. But like Avatar, even though that should have been a shared experience for all of us. It's not something that we wax nostalgic about, like, say, I don't know, uh, uh, maybe another example, like, let's, I'll use another example, 10 years prior to that, let's say the Seinfeld finale, or, Mm. I don't know, Survivor, (laughs) like, you know, (laughs) the first season of Survivor, I know, because one of the first contestants recently passed away, uh, unfortunately, but Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, Survivor's on its 40th season, technically, so, yeah, yeah, who knows, Um, I think the other problem is, and this has to be kind of commented on is even pop culture is now part of the kind of manufactured discontent of the culture wars. So it's like, we can't even really enjoy anything simply enough. Like if it, even if it's something like the Joker or frozen Two, like that kind of gets wrapped up in the whole cultural conversation well, and politics and SJWs and, you well, know, I think it, yes, incels it, and, you know, just, it's, it's too much. It's already still yeah. feels like homework now. Oh, well, there's a reason for that. Incels and, you know, just, it's, it's too much. It's already still yeah. feels like homework now. Oh, well, there's a reason for that. Oh, oh, oh. And it's because we do feel politically powerless. So one of the ways in which we exercise our power is through our consumer habits. And mm. I think one of the biggest like forms of uh, conspicuous consumption that we can do is in say when we go out to see a movie or what what we're going to spend our time on binging mm, and truth. so that that's what we're trying to do especially when like we have a we have a a, a man in power right now who received three million less votes than were in favor historically unpopular and yet there's nothing we can do to really exercise that power even even the process to get him out of that power is out of our hands (laughs) well it's also again as consumers we live in a consumerist hyper capitalist society where even if we decide to boycott something we can't truly boycott something uh facebook for example everyone doesn't like how facebook's acting everyone hates that facebook is part of our lives but we can't really get rid of it. It's too big. Like, what am I going to be, not on Facebook? <laughs> what, am I not going to pay for Amazon Prime? What, am I not going to get my products in two days shipping? Like, what? Yeah. It's absurd. But, and, yeah, to be fair, that's not a new phenomenon either. I mean, mm-hmm. it happens in banking. It happens in our, our beloved car companies. Like, yes, we kind of have these, like, duopolies mm-hmm. or triopolies. And that's how, and so we, we're presented with this choice when it's not really a, a grand choice, is it? No, no. Yeah. 
We started out on a real downer note, didn't we? <laughs> I know, yeah. Sorry to anybody tuning in for the first time, 160 episodes in. Welcome to the Aspiring Snobs Podcast. This is nominally a podcast in which uh, I, Gregory, and my twin brother, Jonathan, Hello. Uh, watch a catch-up on a classic film mm-hmm. that we probably should have seen by now and is not part of our film canon, but we're, we're, we're aspiring. We're trying, to, we're trying to build ourselves anew in, uh, in the world of cinema. And John, start start to cut in anytime. Oh, no, okay, all right. I, 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 I didn't know, Greg. You just you're a font of, of of wisdom and insight. I just I didn't want to interrupt your beautiful beautiful flow. Okay. Well, thank goodness this isn't on video because I am flailing right now. I'm, <laughs> I'm flop sweating. My vocabulary is exhausted. You look like Richard Nixon in 1960. You're like oh. <laughs> Or more like Watergate days, am I right, huh? Oh, yeah. that's right, because we're going back to the yes. swinging 70s. All right, baby. All right. Yeah. Oh, man, John, the 70s. The top pop hits were all folksy songs. <laughs> the, the top movies at the box office were all adult dramas, heavy, thrillers, really psychological. Man, what a wretched time. Awful. <laughs> I never want to go back there again. It was like just a decade of a hangover. Just a drug-fueled hangover. Terrible. Yes. And and even the uppers, um, <laughs> like cocaine like cocaine and uh, <laughs> the greenies that uh, some folks consume, just uh, weren't enough to, to bring you out of that stupor. No, absolutely not. So let's mm-hmm. wallow in that stupor for a while, and let's absolutely. revisit the 1972 classic Deliverance. Seventies a little bit more because even even if you have know nothing about the, this movie Deliverance, you know dueling banjos. Oh, of course. Which yeah, is this the movie that that was already a song before this movie came out, right? It was yes, it was technically a song before it came out, but in James Dickey's book mm-hmm. uh, on which Deliverance is based, there is a scene in which like uh, the city slicker plays along, starts to do a duet with. Uh, a young uh, impresario banjo player, mm. but we had no idea what it was. So they kind of the music supervisor, whoever was in charge of it, started to like uh, just comb through the the archives and found this this composition, or at least uh, modified it somewhat. Which is kind of diegetic, given the fact that in the scene it's actually a guitar and a banjo, but whatever. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's called oh, you didn't banjos. think I would notice, uh, John Borman? Tech- mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's called Dueling Banjos, but it is not actually two banjos. <laughs> But yeah, but I, I'm 
stunned that I'm aware of what Dueling Banjos is, in spite of having no reference point for the movie. And this is another phenomenon I noticed with The Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I knew of the songs like Tradition and Matchmaker without having any idea of what Fiddler on the Roof even was. Mm-hmm. And that's See, another product of the late 60s, early 70s. So what, what was it about this time? Was, was pop culture just too small? And um, I do think you're not giving yourself enough credit. I do think me and you were quite savvy um not if not savvy then just kind of huge digesters uh digesters of pop culture from a very young age i remember we once went on a like little canoe trip and even i started doing the doing banjos like just Uh. knowing that there is a concept of a movie out there where people end up on a river trip and getting attacked by hillbillies of some kind like that was kind of like i knew that as a premise, even though I didn't know specifically it was a movie starring Burt Reynolds from 1972. Um, but yeah, I think part of the reason why we, we just have a kind of natural affinity to absorbing pop culture. And surprisingly, we hadn't seen this movie before, even though we were kind of ultra familiar with it. And like I said last week, when I wanted to do this podcast, we kind of set up a preliminary list of movies that we wanted to revisit or actually have the excuse to revisit. And this is actually one of the earliest ones. And here we are 150 episodes later. And now we're finally <laughs> getting back to it. Yes. Um, was it worth it, John? I'm, I enjoyed it. I thought it was quite good. Okay. Um, it is kind of interesting to think about, we've been talking a lot about kind of the seventies, that this just feels like kind of another one of the movies on the pile. Like, I want to even go as far to say, like, Rocky in the same vein. It's like this, The Deer Hunter, uh, Midnight Cowboy, um, <laughs> Apocalypse Now, like, ironically. All these movies yeah. kind of feel like, you know, a heart, uh, you know, journeying into the heart of darkness of men. Or it's kind of like a lot of 70s movies or a lot of the movies that are lauded from the 70s feel like they're trying to. You know, capture a certain spirit of trauma as experienced by men. And this is definitely very much in that vein. Yeah, and I think it uh, ties to um, kind of the lost Vietnam War at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have another big contingent that are World War II and Korean War veterans as well. And so I think that's all kind of being reflected back in these movies. I, I think... I, I gotta say, I didn't really enjoy Deliverance more than kind of admired it. Because, again, this is our first film from John Borman, mm-hmm. um, who's had a wide and varied career, which I think we'll talk, we'll discuss later. But Zardoz, Zardoz, Zardoz. But I, I kind of admire the the ambition behind it, because as you said, this is like a, a heart of darkness journey. Only instead of like a, a, a riverboat in a war zone or something, it's just four guys, four city slickers, going through the uh, the mountains of Georgia. And it, it, I think that you're right. It is really about masculinity, and also touches on progress because in this element, I didn't know the story. This whole community will be wiped out by a dam. They're constructing a new dam, and it'll be all flooded and turn, transformed into a brand new lake. So there is that kind of like there is not just the culture clash, but also kind of this um, this, this kind of uh, portend of progress and and uh, and environmental ruin and and all that stuff. Um, but uh, I needed to know what it all amounted to and kind of like, I think what it amounts to is pretty small or maybe not small, but not explored as deeply as it could be. No, you're absolutely right. Surface level. No, you're absolutely right. But I think that's what I do appreciate about this movie is that the stakes are pretty small and it's pretty, it's a pretty lean film. And I like that about it. It's pretty efficient. Um, it doesn't well it's not it, 
the pacing uh, <laughs> isn't very efficient, but <laughs> okay, we'll fair that. point, fair point. Um, for all those who don't know, the plot is uh, four uh, older gentlemen friends go on a canoe trip before this uh, river is about to be dammed off and turned into a lake. They want to get the chance to go down it one more time, be adventurers, be out in the wilderness. I mean, but it's pretty clear that, with the exception of Burt Reynolds' characters, they're all just using it as kind of excuse to drink themselves stupid and get away from their lives for a day. <laughs> yeah, I think only one guy of this of this quartet is actually motivated to do the rapids. The other three are pretty obviously like city slickers mm-hmm. and don't have the same like compunction to the nat- the natural world and wilderness. Like no. again, he's got these he's super con- uh, Burt Reynolds' character is super confident in these woods. He he throws these Burt Reynolds out, playing a like... confident actor? Is there anything he can't do? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I, I do like that he got to use his uh, his Floridian charm because he's originally <laughs> from the Panhandle and probably has some has some has some closer personal connection to these mountain men, mm-hmm. uh, these hillbillies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but then where the other the he I wouldn't really consider him the main character. I would consider the main character John Voight's character. Yeah, and technically Ed. he is. He's yeah, because yeah, he's, he's the, the one who kind of goes of through. The, of the novel, yeah. And he goes through the transformation very early on in the scene. It's like the first morning after their uh, first day of camping. He takes the uh, bow and arrow and enters into yep. the woods, and he sees a deer. And obviously thinking that he's, he's you know, the aspiring nature man, he's going to shoot it, and he doesn't really have the courage for it. This is foreshadowing later, folks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's definitely the one who kind of gets the arc of the movie. And again, like exploring the heart of darkness and how men are kind of pushed to the edge and what they have to do to survive because as the trip kind of goes on they run afoul with the the mountain people how goes it what the hell you think you're doing heading down river little canoe trip heading for Aintree Sure. This river only runs one way, Captain. Haven't you heard? You ain't never going to get down to Andrew. Well, why not? Because this river don't go to Andrew. You done taken the wrong turn. See, uh, the Sherry River don't go nowhere near Andrew. Where does it go, then? Boy, you are lost, ain't you? Well, hell, I, I guess this river comes out somewhere, don't it? That's where we're going, somewhere. Look, we, we don't want any trouble here. If you, you gentlemen have a still near here, hell, that's fine with us. Well, sure. We never tell anybody where it is. You know something? You're right. We're lost. We don't know where in the hell we are. A hell? Right, yeah. you making some whiskey up here. We'll buy some from you. We could use it, couldn't we? Boy, you know what the hell you're talking about? We don't well, know look, what I, you're talking about. No, Honestly, no, no. We you don't. said something about making whiskey, right? Ain't that what you said? All I no, we, we, we don't know what uh, you're doing, and we don't care. So this is in Georgia, right? Would that technically be considered Appalachia, where they are? Yes. Okay. It's technically Appalachia. Yeah. All right. Apple. Oh, Appalachia. Excuse me. I, I don't know. I, this is, I just said what comes naturally. So, <laughs> are you, did you eat too much caramel? Is your I mouth just... not moving properly? <laughs> But no, this is the this is the, in the mountains. Uh, they run they run into some hill people, and there's a. It, I gotta say, the first half of the movie is actually pretty light. It doesn't feel like a thriller yet. It feels no. like just four guys out on the mountain, and yeah. that's certainly 
that's certainly reflected in the scene in which the the very first scene in which they actually come together like uh the uh guy the um there's a guitarist again one of the city slickers who just who's out there to have a good time and probably mm-hmm. drink himself silly um he starts playing uh on his guitar like messing around while they're getting gas or getting somebody to help them and then this young boy who I, I don't know if you could tell this, but in a novel, he's described as uh, albino, al, albino and mute and <laughs> um, like literally uncommunicative and can only and is just a savant at the banjo. But they actually come together and one of the mountain men does a little jig and it seems like, oh, everything's normal. Everything's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, these yeah. these guys are kind of weird caricatures, but they're harmless. And yeah. uh, we soon find out that that is not the case for all of them uh, because the two groups get separated there's you know two and two in each canoe and then uh they end up on a different pathway from the river and they get uh confronted by two mountain men and uh one yeah. wants to take advantage of the situation shall yes, we say i should say yes i should say these are different mountain men see that that confused me yeah because it did look like the the same mountain men from earlier the ones that they paid to move their cars for them um, no, so they they aren't. They're completely different guys, and that was my understanding of the movie going in. Like, mm-hmm. it it seems like this initial group of mountain men is going to show these city slickers what's for, and instead it's just kind of two random passerbys who are violent and take whatever they they want. In this case, um, mm-hmm. poor poor Ned Beatty's virginity. <laughs> uh, we left, but it is a very harrowing I, scene, and it was hard to watch. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, again, all credits to John Borman. I think the like the initial scenes again are pretty placid. There's some musical score, which there isn't in this very harrowing scene. Um, John Boyd gets like tied up by his neck, and and um, yeah, I mean, I mean they did find an, uh, an actor authentically without teeth, and mm-hmm. you know the makeup and and the fact that it's framed wide without many very many cuts just makes it all the work. Because I think I think there's this now famous shot where the man kind of saddles up behind Ned Beatty's character and he's actually on the side of the frame mm-hmm. and kind of, and it's not dead center because I think your instinct is to kind of like, Oh, I want to look away. Like I'm trying to, my eyes like trying to <laughs> go to the off screen, but it's kind of like forcing you or it's, it's going where your eyes would naturally go kind of off screen. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, the other thing too is according to the trivia, they only shot this scene maybe twice because obviously Ned Beatty wouldn't be interested in doing take after take of this, so no, uh, they probably used whatever they had. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a very harrowing scene and obviously extremely effective, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and does I, I guess play in the themes of masculinity because we have this perception of men are not the victims of traditionally the victims of sexual assault, mm-hmm. and so like you know, but just um, <laughs> swiftly move away from this. <laughs> One thing I wasn't expecting was, I I thought at this point like now the character motivations are clearer. Like Ned Beatty would like kind of lose his mind at this prospect and and obviously want revenge against these two guys, but he sort of doesn't. No. Instead, uh, it becomes it becomes almost like a Coen Brothers film. Like it's like now what do we do? Yeah, it's yeah now it's now it's a simple plan goes awry because. Uh, Burton Reynolds' character, to defend his friends, like shoots them immediately with a with an arrow and kills one of them. And the debate doesn't co- become like, "Oh, we got to get out of here safely." Now it's like we have to cover up a murder and save our and cover our asses. So it's not really a survival story, even though, well, that's the thing. Burton Reynolds 
like in tones that like oh it's this is the game of survival really when it's not it doesn't feel like that it's not no. men versus nature it's it's more men versus their immorality and and self-preservation exactly and the other weird thing is it also kind of runs kind of counterintuitively against Burt Reynolds' character because Burt Reynolds is the one that's supposed to be more kind of in tune with his natural animalistic side, but then all of a sudden the scene presents him as like a, a law expert. He's like, yeah. oh, <laughs> you know, you think we're going to get a change of jury situation? Like, what? And yeah, oh, th- this is a small community. Everybody knows each other. Like, mm-hmm. we're, ne- we're never going to get a fair trial here. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you're right. It, it, it kind of reveals another side of him, which is a kind of scary. He got a little pretty mouth, ain't he? That's the truth. You're going to do some praying for me, boy. And you better pray good. survivalist like you said so mm-hmm. um and then from there the, you but it does kind of circle back into a another game of survival because once they try to get out of here once they're going down the river uh you mentioned drew drew's the one who's been playing the guitar the whole time he's kind of been the most affable one or at least the most quiet but he's the one who's clearly yeah. the most kind of upset by this murder and the one who just can't handle it and he commits suicide while they're going down the river pretty much I, I do want to push back when you said, like, affable, because I, I want to ask you, is there enough, like, evidence that, like, they're portraying these characteristics that we know them are? This doesn't exactly play out in maybe the way you expect a modern movie would. Mm. They would it would probably be more obvious in terms of, like, I'm Drew, the lighthearted one, or yeah. I, I'm, I'm Ned Beatty's character. What's his name? Eddie? Yeah, Eddie. <laughs> no, he's not Eddie. Sorry. <laughs> Ed is uh, John Voight's character. Ned Beatty plays yeah. Bobby. Bobby, excuse me. <laughs> like I know they call him Fatso or whatever, and mm-hmm. yeah, he does. He does like mention like, yeah, I'm an insurance salesman, but that it's all like a little subtle. And I think well, that's what I think this... works about it. Like okay. one of the things I love about the movie is the opening scene is literally through voiceover them just shooting the shit. Like we don't yes. see them together, and the dialogue is so natural that it all just kind of works as a piece. That's true. The di- the. The dialogue is natural, and they're also addressing and just a little like, expository dialogue. Like they're talking about the dam coming in. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I did like that opening. Like we're a little, we don't know exactly where we are, who's talking. So I'm like compelled by the mystery. But now that I see it play out, like I, th- I think I wanted more like dramatics. It's, it seems like they found a middle ground, which isn't as compelling. Like they have just each character has their one characteristic, but they play it so like little. Like, either if you're going to play it small, like, give them more nuance, or if it's going to be one thing, make it big and histrionic and exaggerated. No, I think I think it plays it right down the middle, and I think that's why it works. 
Okay. Like, and I guess the other, uh, well, you're right. Uh, it would have been interesting if they played up the fact that Ned Beatty was just sexually assaulted a little bit more, because yeah. once they kind of get downriver and it becomes this kind of game of survival, the movie kind of forgets about it. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, the movie's so kind of laser focused on John Voight's character at that point, you kind of forget. And especially in like the last scene, like, you know, Bobby's kind of like, well, let's just not talk about this for, again for a while when it's like, he should really be demonstrating a bit more inner turmoil than this wouldn't you say yeah but maybe again that's the point it's like you know in classic man fashion we're just going to push it down we're just not going to talk about it anymore (laughs) just pretend like it never happened which is kind of unhealthy in and of itself but you're right it doesn't really explore that territory either so you can kind of call it a half measure yeah so i i think it's a bit of a half measure and this is why I'm, i'm more interested to read the book because Maybe as a book, it can get more deeper into these guys psychologically. Oh, yeah. Because, well, you, like yeah. you said, Ed is the narrator of the book. So, yeah, it would be. Yeah. I mean, John Voight's fine in this movie, but you're right. It doesn't really yeah. you know, plumb the depths as much as it could, even though this is it, a Heart of Darkness film. Yeah, and there is one twist that I really did like. Hmm. Um, after they bury this body, they, we have to like rush down river. Now they're not being cautious or anything. Um, Drew, as you said, commits suicide. Basically, throws himself off the boat and can't live with this guilt. Mm-hmm. The other complication that happens is um, the other boat capsizes, and Burt Reynolds' character breaks his leg um, right. somewhat gruesomely. And I like this complication because what it, he's obviously the most capable naturalist among the group, but now he's like really openly like weeping and and paralyzed and. <laughs> And I also did, like, yeah. kind of runs counterintuitive. I did like that it turns it on its head, yeah. And it runs counterintuitive to what I thought this movie was going to be, which is, oh, game of survivalist, Burt Reynolds is going to kick ass like he always does. Yeah. He's going to you know, go full gator on these guys. And no, he doesn't. He's laid out for the rest of the film. <laughs> yes. Um, and again, the rest of his dialogue is pretty much weeping or... Mm-hmm. like I, When I say weeping, I mean, it did it did perk my interest, like, that, like how like how how openly he does like he does intone that pain versus versus like him being super confident earlier like that's the kind of like peaks and valleys i'm talking about like if he was just silent most of the time which he is to some extent like i would find that as like a half measure or a middle ground that doesn't uh that doesn't compel me Hmm. um whereas there are those moments that that it does like play with the contrast of him being super confident earlier and now um uh, super super incapable now hmm but yeah, you're right. The, the the plot's pretty thin, and after it becomes kind of the survivalist uh, game in the second half of the movie, it also gets a little confusing. Um, there's a scene involving a cliff that John Voight has to scale by himself, and then he's confronted by two mountain men at the top, and one gets shot by an arrow somehow. I don't really. I got kind of confused at this. No, point. so the, yeah, so the, that that was him who he fell on his arrow. I think. Okay. Is the idea? Yeah, and. That that's the other ambiguity is he thinks he sees a, a mountain man at the top of this gorge and presumes it's one mm-hmm. of their attackers, but they never actually do determine if it was him or not. Exactly. So and the other thing that is, just exacerbates he look, he, their guilt. Yeah, and he also kills someone to defend himself, and then he looks and realizes it's not the toothless man that attacked him earlier. So now he's killed two yeah. people in self-defense, which obviously weighs on him even more. Yeah, but it it kind of the movie kind of plays it a little too abstractly for me because going back to what we were saying that yeah i mean that's i think that's the other like thing too like, yeah like but, well if you're going to be ambiguous like have a point to it like like get somewhere mm. <laughs> is yeah what I'm exactly and, 
Yeah, and and kind of where it goes, and when you say the plot's pretty thin, because there's no, there's no more kind of twists following this. We have mm-hmm. John Void basically scaling, kills this mountain man who we're not sure is their actual attacker, and that's pretty much it. They get off scot free. It's not yeah. it's not like there's the trial that they feared or the pushback from the police. <laughs> there's an interview the, by a sheriff, but other than that, yeah. Uh, there's an interview by a sheriff, and the implication that yeah, and the implication like their their story doesn't hold up. How how is the broken boat like? How did it mm-hmm. float upstream when you said it broke later? Like yeah, but that that's kind of like toss up. It's like we we've kind of lost them. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're losing time here, so we got to get back to John Voight having having bad dreams and and trying to settle back into uh, his normal city slicker life. Release. Exactly, but, and, that, and that would have been more interesting to play with the kind of guilt-induced psychosis at that point when he's having the dream sequence and things like that. But to have it kind of mm-hmm. midpoint through this harrowing uh, survival experience, then it, it doesn't really quite fit. So, you're right. Uh, I, I, I get what you're saying. This movie kind of does feel like a yeah. half measure. Like, it doesn't really truly commit either way to what it's really yeah. trying to do. So, But, I mean, I still liked it for how lean and efficient it is, and I like the characters, and I like the dialogue. It all felt very natural the direction is obviously great i mean we have nothing but praise for john borman even though i'd never really heard of him until this movie (laughs) (laughs) yeah and when i say half measure i think i i I half appreciate and admire the film like i really like that Mm -hmm. first half i really like when it is just like kind of four guys and it's really um and it's really hiding the fact that there's there's something sinister and and thrilling thrilling to follow Mm-hmm. Like I did like that. I did like him calling like Ned Beatty fatty, and you know, then kind of <laughs> chafing, chafing a little bit. Like that stuff was great. And the fact, I mean, we should give all the actors credit. They are on canoes, like going downstream. There are no studs in this movie. Yes. Yeah, that yeah. is a good point. There literally was no insurance as in this movie, as Burton <laughs> Reynolds said. I don't like insurance. There's no risk. <laughs> so that is like incredibly effectively done. And as you said, the direction is beautiful for the first like. I th- I th- one piece of trivia, according to IMDb, they had to desaturate the colors because it looked too nice. I mean, <laughs> this isn't a river runs through it. This is a harrowing drama. <laughs> yeah. So you're right. That that does look great, but I think it's it's once we do get to that that terrible scene. When I say terrible, I mean like the the content is terrible. The like content how it's is done, terrible. Yes. Yeah. The, how it's done is is very well done. But yeah, once once from there, it's not. It, the movie changes, and it's not maybe what I was hoping for or what I wanted, or it doesn't 
maximize the drama in the way in the ways in which I wanted. So mm. those well, that's the I'm heart sorry of my couldn't live up to what you wanted, Greg. <laughs> exactly. Well, here's a, here's a bad sign. <laughs> I I watch these movies alone. I do not put my fiance through <laughs> the classic <laughs> old foreign language black and white movies because I. I, I'm a weirdo who enjoys that stuff. I know I'm an outlier there. <laughs> okay. But she did insinuate uh, herself into the latter half of the movie. Mm-hmm. And she did ask me once the credits start rolling, why is this considered a classic? Which is a bad sign. <laughs> that is not a question that you want to hear at the end of your movie. <laughs> um, part of the reason I do think is because this movie did put Burt Reynolds on the map. I think that is definitely well, that's a part true. of it. This, and it did introduce the world to, to Ned Beatty. Which um, is obviously not a bad thing. The world is a no, much better place with Ned Beatty in it. Exactly. Compare his performance here mm-hmm. to the executive in Network. You <laughs> like, are messing with the primordial faces, forces of nature, Mister Beal, and I won't have it. <laughs> yeah, cut, cut that. Uh, cut intercut that with the the poor guy pulling his ear and go, they're going wee wee. <laughs> The man has range, is what I'm saying. Such range. <laughs> I know. Burt Reynolds, eh, not so much, but... Oh, no, it's, he was great. He was very convincing. I mean, well, completely different mode from, say, Smokey and the Bandit, where mm. he's, like, practically looking at the camera, like, yucking it up <laughs> with the audience. <laughs> good point, good point. Yeah, that's all good, and, again, really a, a great coming-out party for Mr. John Borman, one of the most uh, legendary out-there kooks <laughs> in the world of directing. <laughs> I mean, what other out there stuff has he done? Well, What'd okay. When I say out there stuff, I I mean maybe maybe he went to t- too many of uh, Robert Evans's parties uh, in the seventies, and that's where he conceived Zardoz and Exorcist Two: The Heretic. And speaking to the very thing, uh, varied career where he came back was in nineteen eighty seven with this very tasteful like prestige drama called Hope and Glory. Um, Mm. Which I think were based on his like personal experiences as a, as a kid, like uh, growing up in Britain in World War Two. So yeah, it looks like a, I'm ca- looking at the poster and it looks like a Holocaust drama of some kind or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was like a Best Picture nominee and and hugely tasteful, like spawned some sequels. So mm. like to go from like um, dark broody thrillers to like coked out wild fantasies to <laughs> like prestige pictures, it's it's an incredible uh, career arc this guy had. All right. I mean, yeah. you make Actually, it sound I like think he's still directing. Wait. Yeah, um, he hasn't directed anything from 2014 until since 2014, I should say. Um, okay. Was Robert Evans a big producer? Because he, we sadly just lost him. Was he a big producer of his movies? At I, the time? I just, I don't think so. Again, I just okay. used him as an example. Um, somebody who's who's probably into the book. Robert Evans was too grounded. Greg, come on, come on, baby. <laughs> You want to do some kind of loincloth wearing uh, Sean Connery movie? Ah, forget it. You bet your ass. <laughs> Robert Evans wouldn't have none of that. No. Yeah, you gabagoo. Was he Italian? I don't know. <laughs> he could do it convincingly. That's true. He was, yes, because he was noted. He was first noted for his wonderful acting abilities. Uh, that's what people know him for best. Okay. <laughs> we'll miss you, Robert Evans. Oh, yeah. You magnificent stallion of a man. I know. Rest in power. <laughs> we also never said something about Robert Forrester when he passed. Maybe we did. I don't know. I don't remember. No, we did. Oh, we did? Okay, good. Yeah. Good, good. I wrote, the, I wrote that tasteful tweet and then posted a Getty image. No, I mean, like, no, much... did we, but we never mentioned it on the podcast. That's all I'm saying. 
No, okay. Well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> one of the- why don't we make this like the end of uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and just bring everybody back? Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> let's see. Who else died in the course of this uh, podcast that we didn't mention? <laughs> Robert Evans, Robert Forrester, um, Al Zakari, the leader of ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible, Greg. In poor taste. Poor taste, okay? Look, have don't, let Donald Trump have one good day, okay? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I, I retract what I said. You do not have to. You do not have to give it to ice. <laughs> Where you go, buddy? Let me ask you something. How come y'all end up full of life jackets? Didn't we have an extra one? No. Drew wasn't wearing his. Well, how come he? He wasn't wearing it. I don't know. Don't ever do nothing like this again. Don't come back up here. You don't have to worry about that, Sheriff. I'd kind of like to see this town die peaceful. I hope Deputy Queen finds his brother-in-law. Oh, he'll come in drunk probably. Sorry, let's get off the Twitter jokes. Let's let's yes. move past it. Greg Greg loves the Twitter joke. Greg lives on Twitter. I I do not. I I've, I'm hooked on Twitter. It's like an yeah. IV. <laughs> <laughs> Just give me all your shittiest takes. I know. I need them. I feed off them. <laughs> no, Greg. Let's let's take it in a positive direction and let's give them a little bit of sampling of something that they can enjoy in their coming week, shall we? You know what? I think it's so good. We should do this every week. <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. Let's do it. Yeah. And you know what? We'll call it Spotlight. 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 You have metal with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale. You said that on a lower register. I mean, come on. Well, it, it, deliver, it deserves some gravitas. Spotlight. I, I know, but I'm trying to kind of frumpfer. I'm trying to, you know, give them a high and then a low. Frumpfer. You know, trying to just you think, a, you think, just like a Jeff Goldblum. He, Bobby... he, he uh, oculates quite a bit. Huh? Back you think Robert place. Evans ever bumpered in her life? <laughs> you <laughs> bet your ass he didn't. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Come on, confidence, John. We need confidence. You're right. Confidence. Although, confidence. Yes. Yeah. Although, I'm going to move somewhat unconfidently into the spotlight oh, because dear. I have some reservations about what I'm going to recommend. Um, All right. All right. Yeah. I'd say I'd say they're only batting. They're doing a. This guy has a respectable batting average, um, mm-hmm. but there's points of improvement. I'm going to give him a literal compliment sandwich. Okay. And well, first of all, bef- why don't you tell him what we're talking about first? <laughs> before no, you- I want to get to. I want to get to this point first. All right. Because I, we all know the concept of a con- compliment sandwich, right? Yes, Greg. We like, all know that. We, I, I, I introduced this to the world just a few episodes ago when we talked know, about but, Joker. Remember? But there's a huge problem. <laughs> okay. All right, because because the idea of a compliment sandwich is if you you deliver do- good news, mm-hmm. then a critique in the middle, mm-hmm. and then follow it up with good news. It's structured like a sandwich. However, 
you don't you don't name a sandwich after what's on the outside. You don't call it a bread sandwich. You call it by what's it on the inside. Okay, I take umbrage with that. I ask for a rye sandwich all the time. I go, give me your best marble sandwich, please. I and d- sometimes no. it's a fun treat to find out what's inside. You say it's on marble rye, though. Mm. <laughs> I'm glad we had this digression. Anyway, I want to <laughs> recommend... Uh, a YouTube channel, again, with some reservations, because he may not be to everyone's taste, mm-hmm. and it's called Renegade Cut. I They get recommended to me all the time, because the Twitter algorithm is unoriginal, so <laughs> please. <laughs> the, YouTube, the YouTube algorithm, you mean. Yes, yes. so please, uh, let me know if he's yeah. worth my time or not. I assume okay. it's a he. <laughs> it is, you're, you're absolutely right, John. You're, you're absolutely right to suspect that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you and I love video essays, because um, we don't like reading, <laughs> and so... <laughs> And we have too much time on our hands. Yes. And so uh, uh, YouTube is now chock-a-block with video essays. But um, Renegade Cut has, has kind of set himself apart. He originally started with just kind of kind of looking at the, the language of film and, and kind of just did a deeper dive in, I think, films that he admired. Like one of his earliest was on American Beauty, a movie I know you love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so... He he, bound it, he basically goes through the film language, like uh, the ways in which it frames our lead character as if he's trapped, you know, mm-hmm. and then uh, like kind of touches on um, American society, particularly capitalism. And this is when he turns. I think around 2016, he, like a lot of other people who saw uh, neoliberalism fail and this kind of third way <laughs> centrism uh, just die on the die on the vine, <laughs> um, turned to full on socialism. And so now everything. Everything he looks at is critiqued through class. Okay. Yeah. Now, this, for some people I know, um, is either really good or really exhausting. Mm. And I will admit that some of his videos are exhausting. Like, um, I think they average about 20 to 30 minutes in length. Oh, no. Yeah, and he could spend a solid 15 minutes just going over, like, class politics. Like, just explaining terms. Okay. Yes. So, I I do want to warn that caveat. However... I find that he is very good at articulating what I also like kind of agree with on some points. For instance, he is not a fan of Paul Thomas or excuse me. He is not a fan of Wes Anderson. Okay. As as am I. Mm-hmm. And he he views it through the lens of class. My my issues are more with style. Okay. Um, the fact that this uh, all his stories seem to be flatline and don't really matter like how they how they how people react emotionally. His has more to do with class and how every movie is about generally well-off white people um, <laughs> using either Oh no, they're India problems. Or, <laughs> yes, <laughs> using either India, Danny Glover, or in the case of Isle of Dogs, pet um, <laughs> ownership in Japan as means to like self-actualize yeah. uh, basically well-off white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so. in, in his defense, in the Grand Budapest Hotel, he does kind of point that out or kind of use that as a, a big teachable moment when, you know, Ralph Fiennes' character is kind of so obsessed with what his problems are, he doesn't even realize that Zero has had a much harder life. But, you know, that's that's yeah. literally three seconds in a in a large body of work. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I, I want to recommend him now because he has two, he had two very commendable uh, videos coming out recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was a uh, th- this one. This one's a little bit more parodic. He's he does it as a training video, and he centers it around the office. Okay. And the whole point of the video is not to critique the office, but use the office as an example of like uh, um, working class culture and okay. how it's um, and how it uh, 
fights up against the managerial class and your rights as a worker. So that's it's very inf- informative and funny, mm-hmm. the fact that he is parodic. The next one also, the one I appreciate him most, he he basically expresses his hatred for Rick and Morty. Oh. Um, and this one, oh, yes, and this one... Just the hottest takes. <laughs> exactly. And this one we're aligned because uh, he, he shares the same perspective I do, which is that basically it's an ugly, ugly show in which um, cynicism and cruelty are equated with intelligence, and mm. basically it all gears towards nihilism. Um, I mean, he, he is fair, like, he will acknowledge when something's funny, but he also is very thorough in, in the fact that every in every episode, uh, Rick is basically validated and rewarded. <laughs> um, I'm going to push back against that, because the okay. season three finale, the whole kind of point, and maybe you could even argue that the whole build-up of the whole show is to watch him be unvalidated and him become the lowest status character in the show again. Um, uh, granted, it's kind of hard to see the forest from the trees, because in that episode, he gets into a uh, large-scale battle with the President of the United States, um, <laughs> voiced yeah. by the great Keith David. But yeah, yeah like and to, I, and to be was, fair, it's not like, it's not a super thorough, you know, look into each. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of folks in the YouTube comments like pushing. Well, no, it's back like on. it's a, you know that's the weird thing about that show is because on the surface, and yes, he has an excellent point. It does, especially in the earlier episodes. Rick is the smartest, most capable, you know, godlike being on the on the universe, but because of that you kind of do miss the force from the trees and it can be kind of obvious that they are trying to knock him down a peg or kind of show how deeply unhappy he is and that this is really not the way to live um but that can kind of be hard to miss and especially if he's not a huge fan of it i assume he hasn't seen every episode so obviously he he can't really know that you know there's some episodes that do try to tackle that specifically well i think he does and well Mm -hmm. and he'll also he also critiques it as somewhat of a of a of an unsuccessful satire Mm. like it's not clear enough like if it if the show really does look down on rick or shares his perspective yeah and again like people can totally miss that because one of the most mimetic things that ever came out of this show is pickle rick i don't know if you're familiar with that episode well yeah he goes in he doesn't go in long but it's the longest one that he explores and yeah (laughs) he and being woke as he is he does note that it's when they actually hired female writers on the show (laughs) exactly yes (laughs) exactly and that's yeah season three which is you know rick obviously gets knocked down a few pegs so Mm-hmm. We'll see what season four is like, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, those ones I appreciate. Um, but to, but to put the uh, to make this a closed face compliment sandwich, I I will mm-hmm. also critique him on this. He discusses fascinating subject in the most boring ass <laughs> monotone ever. He really needs to work on his inflection because okay. yes, he can he can be very dry at times. That's why I really like that office kind of parody where it's like a training video because. It it gives it breaks him out of this mode this like over this over explaining monotone. So, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds really See, I fascinating. Think you are fa- I think you yes I think you are familiar with him. Maybe you only clicked on thirty seconds and were like nope. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah. But I gave you at least three to look at. So okay. if you could sit through those three, then maybe you can check out some of the other ones. But all right. Yeah. Overall, I I think of uh, YouTube essayists. He is, like, somewhere in the upper third. How about that? Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to give a mini spotlight, because I don't know if we've ever mentioned him, but Just Right, I would say, is probably my 
of all the YouTube video essayists, he's probably my favorite to watch, mostly because A, his videos are mercifully short, which is only like yeah. 10 minutes at a time, but also he kind of like tricks you. He has like his latest one is, you know, he's talking about the Joker and is it dangerous? And really that's kind of like a clickbaity way to talk to you about, well, this is what Plato thought and basically how people, how philosophers have talked about art and its influence on society as a whole. So, you know, it's, it's, he's, he's quite fascinating and I do kind of want to give him a shout out as well. And he has a okay. great voice, just, ooh, mm, like velvet <laughs> butter down my ear. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Yep. All right. Stealing my thunder, I see. Yeah. Not that I care. I mean, <laughs> the, the thunder wasn't loud. It was, oh, I'm this sorry. Isn't a... Am I... <laughs> sorry, YouTube essay master class right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. How, how dispiriting would that uh, installment of master class be? <laughs> This is how you make YouTube video essays. You see, yeah, you see Nerd Writer on there. Like, <laughs> the thing you have to remember about your audience is... <laughs> no, the worst one would be Nando. <laughs> you just have to rewrite <laughs> movies that have already made a billion dollars, and somehow that gets clicks. <laughs> hey, I, I, show me the lie. <laughs> I mean, it's what we do, isn't it? And we're the most popular podcast in the world, so... Oh, that's a great point. I keep forgetting about that. Yeah. Speaking of great podcasting material, I have a spotlight, too. (laughs) Um, We were just talking about the late, great Robert Forrester, and I remember that I recently rewatched El Camino, a Breaking Bad story. Have you gotten a chance to catch this yet, Greg? Yes. No. I I watched it twice. Not because I enjoyed it, but because I was kind of fascinated. (laughs) All right. And I had nothing else to watch. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. This is a... A Breaking Bad spinoff, really. It's mm-hmm. about so the show is concluded. It's about Jesse Pinkman many years later, mm-hmm. which right? I, is that right? Yeah, not many which, years. Which later. didn't compel me. Yeah, which didn't. Which not didn't, many years later. Literally picking up immediately after uh, the events of the finale. But I don't, man, Aaron Paul's aged a lot. I think he's a dad now. <laughs> right? Come on, the digital de aging. We got the technology. We can make it yeah, happen. Okay. They actually do All a right. pretty good. Uh, the weird, th- the thing, the reason why I kind of want to talk about it is because. What I want to know is how someone would respond to this movie if they just came in cold. And Oh, if they had never watched Breaking Bad. Exactly. And I do want to give the movie, or the little, I keep calling it a movie, a TV yeah. special. <laughs> I do want to give it credit. Even if you come in cold, I do think that there is a, a lot to admire, and it still keeps up the frenetic pace and a lot of kind of the stylistic choices that kind of make Breaking Bad a very compelling watch. So, um... I do appreciate it on that, even though I do think it kind of also gives into the worst impulses that Better Call Saul has, which is it teases us with very obvious like cameos and like, oh, he's talking to someone behind the wall and then the camera pans over and it's everyone's favorite character. Yay. You know, it's like it does. Better Call Saul in the early season did that way too much. And uh, that okay. always bugged me. But um uh, it's it's well, what what new characters? Most of them are dead at this point, right? <laughs> um, it, it's an excuse to bring back like a kind of perennial favorites like Badger and Skinny Pete. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, and like then those, a lot of oh, yeah, guys. and a lot of the kind of smaller, uh, what you know, the smaller characters like the junkyard owner and like we mentioned uh, earlier, Robert Forrester shows up again as the uh, vacuum repairman. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't remember, Robert Forrester played uh, the vacuum repairman, quote-unquote. That was kind of his cover because his real business was getting people completely out of Dodge. And right. so the movie, 
the TV special. Uh, it takes place mm-hmm. immediately after the events of the season finale or series finale of Breaking Bad. Uh, we see Jesse Pinkman escape his captors, escape his uh, imprisoned life, and basically he has to figure out what to do next. The cops are after him. Um, he needs to get enough money to give to Robert Forrester so he can kind of get a new life and get a new identity. And basically, there's the propulsive action of where the hell is he going to get this money, but then also layered on top of that is this whole theme of is he worthy of redemption? Is there a a better future for Jesse Pinkman? And we get flashbacks uh, in the intervening time where he's made choices and we kind of get to reevaluate everything that he's kind of done up until this point. And that's why it kind of works even if you haven't seen Breaking Bad because the character is still there and all the kind of implications from those flashback scenes, even if you don't know the specifics of the context, you understand where the characters are at at that point. So, Okay. Mm-hmm. When it, I got to ask, so when it does flashbacks, does it literally flashback to points in the series or do characters like just allude to it and you see it wash over um Aaron Aaron Paul's face like <laughs> um it's they flash back to specific moments and if you're familiar with the show you can tell like what season or what episodes these are happening in between um a majority okay. of the flashbacks So it's are, not like they refilmed it or something No no Did no, no, they no, or? no they didn't refilm okay. anything they're not reusing any footage but um there's a very uh notable episode of uh Breaking Bad called 4 Days Out from season 2 um, we flash back to a scene that's kind of implied to have taken place during that episode or something like that. Like them coming okay. back from that uh, trip or something like that. And then also, again, I'm trying not to like give too much away, but um, obviously the last season, Jesse Pinkman was in captivity for most of it. He was a prisoner. And so we yep. get flashbacks of what that was like for him and kind of little events that happened uh, in that time. So, So not necessarily yeah. stuff that we saw in the show, but again, if right. we're familiar with the show, we know when this is supposed to be taking place. All right. I, I guess I'll give it a try. Again, you liked Breaking Bad. I say again, as if I brought this up, but you adored Breaking Bad, um, whereas I was... And I love Better Call Saul. I'm all about yeah. that Better Call Saul. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm not as invested in this universe, maybe, but uh, maybe I will check it out. I mean, it would be. I think it would be interesting for you to watch, maybe so you can judge kind of Vince Gillian's style as a director. Because part of me does feel like maybe he gets a little too uh, flashy for his own good. Uh, maybe makes kind of things a little too obvious, the way he kind of moves his camera around within a space. And, you know, like the dividing lines, like <laughs> it's, it's a little showy at times. So um, I'd like to see what you think about it if you get the chance just to kind of see it from a director's perspective or yeah. a cinematographer's perspective. Yeah, um, he being a great uh, director and cinematographer myself. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. <laughs> no, yeah, no. Now that I think about it, my brain is going back to my favorite episodes of Breaking Bad, were directed by Ryan Johnson of now mm. Star Wars fame. Like he he's a, he's quite skillful in that, and I think knows when when to show restraint or when to cut away or give us a new angle or something, and and maybe. Like it's very hard to kind of be up to that level, and maybe the other other directors like can't do that. But yeah, I can't think of ones in which uh, uh, Vince Gilligan directed. But yeah, I'll have to revisit and, and kind of judge he... judge for myself. I, I'm more interested. Again, I, I I was kind of not turned off, but uh, mm-hmm. somewhat reluctant because of the story element. Like I like we I believe the final episode of Breaking Bad. Spoiler alert! Um, many years later. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> But yeah, he breaks away from these neo-Nazi captors, and you know he's 
he screams like you know scream uh blaring away in uh in i believe an el camino car or something like kind of yes that's um, that's where the title comes from greg good job oh okay (laughs) oh it's not literally the road okay got it no um and i thought that was just a a fitting finale i I don't i I didn't exactly see or want to see where the story goes from here no and i do you're right i do appreciate the ambiguity of the the final we don't really know what lies in in for jesse pinkman and this does kind of the same thing this is a very kind of limited scope um we just kind of see what he does in the intervening 48 hours after he escapes and then from there it's again that question of uh, is he worthy of redemption or did he actually truly find it so we'll see all right yeah we'll see in 20 right. years when we see uh the uh, uh, ford taurus and <laughs> breaking that <Bad> story <laughs> This one's around Badger, right? Um, does he deserve redemption? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Will Skinny Pete ever being... go back to Juilliard? <laughs> I know. <laughs> You're just not a huge Breaking Bad stand, so yeah, you can't you can't make all the jokes. No, I can't. I I apologize. You're not even up on the memes, um, Greg. How can you say no. you're on Twitter when you're not up on the memes? So what do you mean? There's Pete's on the roof. There's um. <laughs> There's uh, uh, what else? There's a. Uh, uh, I'm not up on my Spanish. What's it? The Hermanos Poyos or what? What's what's Gus's uh, store Los called? Poyos Hermanos. Chain. The Chicken Brothers. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Poyos Hermanos, not Hermanos Poyos. All right, I got it backwards. Okay. Yes. <laughs> By the way, the actor's name is Juan Car is not Juan Carlos Esposito. It's John Carlos Esposito, which I think is completely unfair because it's spelled Juan. <laughs> it should be Juan, and it would give it more. No, of it's G I A N. Whatever. It's it should be Juan Carlos. <laughs> it would give it more of a. a a Spanish flair, even though he's half Italian. It doesn't matter. I'm just I, mad about it. All right, fair enough. We'll 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 swiftly move past that. Um, <laughs> you being mad that somebody's not ethnic enough, I guess. <laughs> we should celebrate our differences. I do. Yeah. Um, let's hear your complaints on social media. Mm-hmm. If you if you object to what John just said. Go ahead. Let us know. Let us hear it on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. On you can Instagram. harass us there all day long. Absolutely, I do. I do like our Instagram feed. It's pretty good. I mean, I, mean, I do a pretty good job. Not gonna lie. <laughs> exactly. How do you receive compliments, John? I mean, humbly. Like, do you like push back and say no, not me, or go on like kind of feign like? Um... <laughs> You you don't really want more compliments, but when you do, um, that's what I do. I try anyway. to go like the Joe Pesci route. Like, what do you mean I'm funny? Funny how? Like, <laughs> get really defensive and angry, even though you were trying to compliment me. <laughs> Great. Perfect. Yep. But if you do want to harass us some more, we also have an email, aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, again, open to harassment, but we also do take recommendations and questions that we'll read on the air. Yes. So please, reach out to us there. And then, once mm-hmm. you're done with all that what would really help us out and what would really mean a lot to us if you go to your podcast service of choice and give us five stars. Indubitably. There, <laughs> Indubitably. if you give us five stars, you will help other people find our podcast. Mm-hmm. More people will listen. We'll create a broader Aspiring Snobs community. The algorithm and will, we will, will lead more people to us, and that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, I, I think it'll draw more people to classic films like Deliverance. Um, and they could agree with me that eh, it's just okay. Shoulder shrug. <laughs> um, and hopefully, more importantly, disagree with you. I, I don't want to win as much as I want to see you um, disagreed with and, and proven wrong. So I mean, maybe that's the element this podcast is missing. It has to be a competition. We have to like literally yes. score and uh, like prove one another wrong. Like This has to be like yeah. crossfire. 
Yeah, I think I think I was a, an original vision for the show. Mm. Um, lost in time because <laughs> I don't think those episodes are online even anymore, which is a good thing, I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> Again, we'll we'll save it for the Patreon. There you go. Yep. <sighs> well, uh, one other thing we're going to save is uh, our energy for next week because we're taking the week off. <laughs> yes, Greg's apparently going on vacation, so. Yep. If you have any complaints, you can direct it at him because he's not dedicated and he doesn't care about you. So, yep, I care John about John Mantel on Twitter. J O N. I care about literally our single digits of fans. Okay, <laughs> and they're going to be severely true. disappointed that we're not going to be around next week. But no, I know. that Don't just means that me. not, I mean, it's, it's all on you. So <laughs> it's just the way it's going to be. So okay, fine. fair enough. Well, thank you everybody for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Until then, keep aspiring, bitch. <laughs> remember everybody? Remember that? Yeah, from yeah. Breaking Bad, huh? We remember from Breaking Bad. Good yeah. job, Greg. Good yeah. job. <laughs> you found the meme. I, yes, I, I did it. I won the meme. <laughs> <laughs>